Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm Michael Fling, one of your hosts here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my personal shapoopy, Annika Chapin, Goodspeed's resident dramaturg and artistic associate. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. I love that. Are you the girl that's hard to get? Well, but you can win me yet. Oh, that was good. That was good. Would you like to tell everyone what is in the spotlight this episode? I would love to. We are diving into the 1957 classic, brilliant Meredith Wilson piece of genius, The Music Man. Oh, we got trouble, my friends. Right here, I say trouble right here in River City. Why, sure, I'm a billiard player. So I'm mighty proud to say it. I'm always mighty proud to say it. I consider the, I just gay clicked, so that'll be to the end of that. <laughs> and I think that will bring us to uh, my least favorite segment, but many people's favorite segment, the speed test. Hudson's floor wax doesn't matter. 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 Where we see if I can recall the plot of the music man in 60 seconds. I have a feeling I'm going to do very poorly on this one since I know it so well, but we'll see. Yeah, this one's got a lot of plot happening. All right, you ready? Sure. And go. Okay, so we start on a train. Ollie Salesman, Charlie Cowell, he's bad. He doesn't like Harold Hill because Harold Hill sells boys bands and he doesn't know anything about music. And he says that he can never get away with it in River City, Iowa. Harold Hill's on the train. He's like, haha, we'll see. He goes into River City. He meets his old friend Marcellus and he starts to tell everyone there's a problem with a pool table in town. Uh, but then he needs to win over the approval of Marion, the local piano teacher and librarian. She doesn't like him. At the 4th of July at festivities, he tells everyone, well, let's cut that, um, forget about that. Um, so basically he wins over the town and he starts getting all these boys to sign up for the band, uh, including Winthrop, who is Marion's little brother, who has a lisp and doesn't talk very much. And uh, the Wells Fargo wagon comes, brings everyone their instruments, and basically uh, he doesn't have, he's going to give everyone the, the big debut at the ice cream social, but he's got to get out of town. Um, but he's fallen in love with Marion, and Marion has fallen in love with him. And uh, so they meet at the footbridge, and she's like, oh, I liked you all the time. I even did research on you. I found out you weren't real because Gary Conservatory didn't exist then. And she ends up standing That's up. That's uh, I got a misnomer. I got lost in trying to get to 76 trombones and actually describe. I could have just licked it much faster. Didn't even mention the mayor or you, Lillian Technician. True, but, you know, you're getting the gist of it. And you got to a good, it's a very sort of cliffhanger moment. Well, she basically shills for him in front of the entire town. And she's like, we did have a band. We did have magic. Look at how everyone acted all summer. And everyone's like, yeah, we love Harold. And everyone's happy, and uh, he presumably stays in River City to marry Marion, the librarian. Yay! Happy endings for musical comedies. Happy endings, although we do kind of wonder about his sustained happiness in River City. But that's another question. <laughs> I've actually never really considered life in River City post the final scene of The Music Man. I do, I do. I always find myself thinking about, like, what is he going to do? That's going to allow him to, to like, scratch that itch of, you know, con mannery. And that will bring us to Why God Why. Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the big idea of the show, the thing that connects the characters and drives the narrative. And I would say that the big idea of The Music Man is that music can change lives. 
and music can bring happiness where there presumably wasn't. I think that that is the driving force of the narrative, um, particularly when you look at the story of Winthrop and his trajectory and the trajectory of the town. Um, even just the idea of music and the idea of this um, communal experience of sharing in music brings a lot to River City. What, what, what do you think the big idea is, Annika? I, I think that's a great one. What I would say is probably the primary one is for me is not to judge people. I think this show has a lot to say about insiders and outsiders. We'll talk about that later. But I think if there's one message that I always get, it's sort of open your heart, don't judge a book by its cover, and um, allow people to surprise you and allow allow there to be room for f people to change in your estimation and understanding. I think that's great. Yeah, certainly that uh, is at play with the Tommy and Zanita plot and everyone kind of has a secret identity that we don't really know about almost all the characters have have dual have dual sides to them yeah absolutely and i mean we'll talk about this later but i think harold till is a fascinating protagonist because he has a superpower that he is not aware of um so it's actually a really interesting show that way which um because i think we have a love story where the marion is able to see something in harold that he doesn't even see him in himself but actually which makes him lovable in a way that we don't originally see him as lovable etc i can't wait to hear more about that mm. so monica why don't you go ahead and take us back to before and tell us about the history of the music man we can never go back to before all right well so the music man was written by meredith wilson who wrote all of it himself and he was quite the multi-hyphenate. He was born in Mason City, Iowa, which we'll come back to in just a second. But he studied music in New York City at what would become the Juilliard School. So from an early age, he was a really stellar musician. And he played the flute and piccolo, um, which is interesting because those instruments do pop up in the narrative of the show. And he played in John Philip Sousa's band, which is kind of interesting because Sousa himself looms over the narrative as well. So in some ways, Meredith Wilson had the experience that Harold Hill brags about in 76 Trombones of playing playing with John Philip Sousa, who's obviously the, the March King, the kind of band leader extraordinaire of the early 20th century in America. And then after that, he played in the New York Philharmonic under Toscanini. So he started out really as a, as a very strong musician. And then to list all his many career accomplishments would take quite a long time. And we're going to have a lot to say on this show. So I'm going to, I'm going to stick to a, a quick summary. He was the music director for the NBC radio network. And then he became an on-air talent. He composed scores for films, including Chaplin's The Great Dictator, for which he was nominated for an Oscar. And then during World War II, he worked for the Armed Forces radio network and frequently worked with George Burns and Gracie Allen, both as the band leader and as an on-air character. So he always, throughout his career, had this interesting duality where he did just multiple things. He was really a polyglot in terms of being a musician, being an actor, being a leader, um, just one thing after another. He was really doing all this different stuff. So after the war, he had his own radio show and then eventually worked on shows with stars like Tallulah Bankhead and Jack Benny, 
And in case that wasn't exhausting enough, he also wrote three biographies over the course of his life, several classical compositions, including both symphonies and chamber music, several pop songs, including It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas, and he produced a few television specials. So he was not a lazy man, Meredith Wilson. As I mentioned, he wrote three biographies, one of which ended up being about the making of The Music Man, called he doesn't, But He Doesn't Know the Territory. But it was his first biography, which he wrote in 1948, called And There I Stood With My Piccolo, that inspired The Music Man. It was about his childhood in Mason City, Iowa, and the particularly flinty but ultimately warm-hearted Iowa people that he grew up around. So that's what really turned into this show for him. And with a smattering of other influences, like, for example, the character of Marion Peru, the town's no-nonsense librarian, uh, was not actually inspired by someone he grew up with, but someone he met in World War II, a medical records librarian named Marion Seeley. So he pulled from different sources, but it was really this particular culture of Iowa, this particular uh, language, which of course his language is really iconic, that ended up turning into a musical. But I'm going to turn it over to Michael to take it from there. Yeah, so... Two producers who we've talked about previously on the show, Ernie Martin and Cy Fuhrer, contacted Wilson in 1951 about the idea of him writing a musical comedy based on his book, an idea his wife had had, according to Meredith Wilson, 6,741 times. Uh, but the actual idea of writing a show was a little too much for him. He ended up writing a bunch of essays about his childhood and like 20 songs just as a here's the kind of general world of what I think this show could be and wrote a bit of an outline which he titled The Silver Triangle, about a boy's band and a con man by the name of Harold Hill. He and his wife auditioned the show for Fuhrer and Martin, uh, who loved what they presented. And basically they were like, it's great, we need to shift around the plot, cut it down, but we love it, don't touch it until after they had opened their next two projects. And they urged him to call it something other than The Silver Triangle, saying that that sounded like an Ibsen satire, which made me chuckle. And eventually, Fuhrer and Martin came up with the title of The Music Man, which he and his wife liked just fine. So after their two shows had opened, which was about a year later, Martin actually went to L.A., where Wilson lived, to work on the show with him. By that point, Fuhrer had proclaimed himself as the director, and Martin was going to help Wilson with the book. They massively reworked the show, almost top to bottom, and Wilson describes his original his. And Wilson describes his original draft as a play with music, and that time really made it into a musical comedy. And after they'd gotten a new draft, they would end up reworking it and start telling the story to each other out loud to be as simple and clear as possible, which I thought was a really interesting tool that they used to trim down the story. But the relationship between Harold and this character, Marion, was already becoming clear for Wilson. And he pictured them both as lonesome and meant to be together. So he cleverly mirrored Goodnight My Someone and 76 Trombones to be the same melody, but hers as a ballad waltz and a march for him. There are a lot of musical Easter eggs in The Music Man that you may not notice necessarily, but it is very, very smartly put together. He really is a, a master musician in that way. Oh my God, we could just have a podcast only about all of the Easter eggs and all of the interlocking and the dramaturgy of the music of the music man. It's so brilliant. And slowly Wilson started to notice he was writing the show just to please Martin because he liked so much of what he had to say. And he was such a dominant personality and their personalities and styles just continued to get into conflict. They did have two major differences of opinion. One 
was the debate over whether or not the audience should be told that Harold Hill was a con man or if they should slowly learn it as the show went on. Wilson thought that they should slowly learn it, and Martin convinced him that they, it had, they had to be told because he was a lovable rogue. The other difference is whether music should grow out of the story organically without interruption or didn't need so much justification. Wilson favored organic and Martin didn't think it was as necessary. But Wilson had this idea of rhythmic dialogue that Martin thought was crazy because people don't speak in rhyme. And they ended up having a bit of a tiff after Martin said that they weren't even remotely close to having a show yet, which Wilson really objected to. And while Martin never actually said he was giving up on the project, Wilson knew. He and his wife, Rini, went on a vacation to San Diego where they met Franklin Lacey, who Wilson immediately hit it off with. He ended up telling him the story of the music man as it existed at that moment, which was still Harold Hill and Marion the Librarian, and the janitor's spastic, quote-unquote, son, uh, which was the subplot at the time. And Charlie Cowell had emerged as a rival salesman, with Tommy and Zanita still being the sub-love story, with a fighting school board that would become a barbershop quartet and Harold Hill's first miracle in River City. And there was a lot of affection for this subplot of the janitor's son. Lacey joined Wilson and set about to write an outline of the show with a visual component that is quite interesting. So the show goes through a ton of writing in the fall of 1956, uh, and Wilson counts that he had 32 different drafts by that point. Martin and Fear actually came back into the picture for a minute to offer him another show, which Wilson turned down in order to finish Music Man. And he got up the courage to ask Kermit Bloomgarten, who had produced The Most Happy Fella, if he'd be interested in The Music Man. He auditioned the show for him and Herb Green, the famed music director, who took to the show immediately. And Bloomgarten asked permission to produce the show the following morning. So back to the subplot about the janitor's son. Wilson was talking to Lacey, and they were talking about My Fair Lady, which was the current running hit on Broadway. And Wilson kept talking about how he'd seen it three times and he really didn't care for the show until it got to the famous Rain in Spain scene where Eliza finally says the Rain in Spain stays mainly in the plane the right way. And he talks about watching that scene, he immediately falls in love with the show and describes that as theater magic and was saying that the music man was dripping in this kind of theater magic with the barbershop quartet, and this unidentified lisping kid who bursts out and sings about how excited he is about the Wells Fargo wagon. That's theater magic. And that's when it hit them both that this janitor's son subplot should become about a lisping kid, i.e. the birth of the character Winthrop. And as they were starting to cast the show, they ran into big trouble. But the first people to be cast were the Buffalo Bills, who were the champion barbershop quartet of the time. And actually, the first barbershop quartet in a musical or a movie up to that point, which is a fascinating little fun fact. And they really- fascinating. Kind of surprising, but, um, uh, and they really wished that Danny Kaye would do the role, but they decided that they needed a real actor and Robert Preston nailed both of his auditions and won the role. So they get into rehearsals and where they were rehearsing about the new Amsterdam and they ended up having a run through at the Barrymore Theater with some invited guests and the audience was absolutely in awe of the show, bursting with applause and jaws on the floor, which really got them excited for their out-of-town tryout in Philadelphia, which was not as kind. Um, they felt the show lost a little bit of the magic, but they still managed to get good reviews. Uh, and against Wilson's initial instincts, they continued to improve the show. Initially, interestingly enough, the, train, the now famous train scene was scored 
but they completely took out the score and ended up having the train starting up and slowing down at the end just using the rhythm of the guy's voices a now iconic opening of a musical that has inspired many many artists and many would say is the first moment of quote-unquote rap in a broadway musical a debate for another time and the other big change during this time was to my white knight which he realized that enough of these numbers were specialty numbers and he really needed to let barbara cook just sing a beautiful ballad and the final change uh during this time was anna white the choreographer decided that the library ballet wasn't quite working because harold hill wasn't coming back at the end so they added harold hill with a final verse at the end of the ballet in total meredith wilson says he wrote about 40 songs for the show, 23 between the audition for Fuhrer and Martin and the opening at the Schubert in Philadelphia. And the final score only has 18 songs in it. So really a ton of work and revision that goes into this piece. So once the show opened up Broadway, it was a big hit. It was nominated for, uh, well, this is a little controversial because they have best musical and best producer of a musical as separate categories. So it was nominated for either nine or 10 Tony Awards, depending on how you want to count that, because now that would be one award. And it won five or six, again, if you want to count that separately or the same. And it won best musical, which was pretty remarkable considering it had some stiff competition that year, a little show called West Side Story. So this is one of the classic like Titanic theater matchups where you have these two amazing shows competing with each other in the same year. And in this case, Music Man took the big prize over West Side Story. And ever since then, the show is on almost every list of the greatest American musicals of all time. And there have been so many versions of it since the original production uh, of several revivals, including ones in 1980 and in 2000, and one that's supposed to come next year question mark question mark starring hugh jackman and sutton foster a controversial choice as she is not a soprano i would just like to know what key she plans on singing my white knight in that's my only question i mean it's a it i loves me some sutton foster but this is a peculiar choice why would you cast someone who who can't sing the role as written i mean my white knight <laughs> I mean, in her defense, I don't think Sutton Foster would do something that she didn't think she was capable of doing. I totally agree. I think whatever they do, they'll figure it out. But man, and I have to say, too, I am very excited to see Hugh Jackman play Harold Hill. I think he will be a great Harold Hill. That man is liquid charisma and Harold Hill is all charisma. So that's a really perfect cast, I think. I and very excited for the production. I will also say I'm very excited for who they replace Hugh Jackman with, a la Bernadette Peters getting to take over Bette Midler in the Hello Dolly. Um, I have a list of people I'd like to see perform the role of Harold Hill. Yes, I agree. It also would be great to see some people of color somewhere in that cast, but I digress. Really? Hey. Dropping truths on the podcast. Dropping truths. But yes, going back, uh, there was also a movie version in 1962 starring Robert Preston, who had starred in the Broadway version, of course, and um, Shirley Jones in the movie. And it was interesting. Originally, they didn't want to cast Robert Preston in the movie because they thought he was maybe too old and they were going to get a bigger name. And basically all of the people that they approached about playing that part said, uh, no, Robert Preston plays that part. What are you doing? So 
a lot of famous names turned it down because they didn't want to step into the, the enormous shoes of Robert Preston. You know, on the movie, I think that movie is one of the the great stage to screen adaptations. I think it's a fantastic, I think it's a fantastic movie. On the back lot of Warner Brothers, which is now most famously known as the set for Gilmore Girls. No, really? Oh, you didn't know that? Oh, yeah, yeah. If no. You, the town of River City is Stars Hollow. Huh. I did not know that. That's fun. And then in 2003, there was a made-for-TV version starring Matthew Broderick as Harold Hill and Kristen Chenoweth as Marion that aired on ABC. So, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside My White Knight? What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. All right, so let's jump into My White Knight, which is Marion's, well, one of Marion's big number, uh, towards the end of the first act, where we really get to learn a little bit more about who she is and what's going on in her head, which is interesting and complex and full of feeling but also full of knowledge and intellectualism and just this kind of beating heart at the center of it so i'm listening to the original cast recording with barbara cook the genius brilliant barbara cook with a voice like a clear stream through a mountain pass i mean barbara cook is amazing shout out to barbara cook that's the one i'm listening to yeah i highly recommend it so uh if you want to go listen to the whole song go do that now if not, if you already know it, then we'll play some bits of it so you can just come on back and uh, we'll dive in. All right, so uh, now that you've either listened to that delicious Barbara Cook version or had it in your head, um, let's, let's get started here. So this number falls, uh, as I said, towards the end of the act. Marion has gotten increasingly suspicious of Harold Hill, who has tried to sort of seduce her, flirt with her, uh, charm her, I would say, uh, which all of which has been really unsuccessful. She's just not having it at all. The rest of the town has started to really fall for him. Um, and she is deeply skeptical, thinks he's kind of a pest. Uh, it is not working. And this, of course, is part of his plan. He wants to keep her off balance because she's the only person who can recognize that he's a con man because she's a music teacher, so she knows what real music teaching looks like. But I think it's also, you know, uh, a choice that he's making. She's a challenge and he loves a challenge, et cetera, et cetera. And he's come and he's just uh, talked to Mrs. Peru, convinced her to, to buy um, a cornet for Winthrop, had a little moment with Winthrop. Um, Mrs. Peru is fully on board with Harold Hill as a, as a suitor for Marion. Uh, Marion has been sort of rude to him or brusque with him and this song happens after mrs peru points out that um she doesn't know who marion is waiting for basically she says i don't know what kind of white knight you expect to come in um at your age which of course is like 26 or 27 because let's just not go into the roles of women and the whole spinsterhood and etc 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 this is marion responding to her mother um and basically saying that she doesn't want she's not looking for some perfect man to come along. This is the song that she sings about what she's looking for. Um, and bef right before this, she actually, she has two examples of the kind of man who's, who's made offers to her basically. Um, one of whom pushes her up against the, the ancient history section of the library whenever he comes in. And another one she says who has that removable backseat of, of the buggy. So, and, and the mother's response indicates that she's not really aware of that. So 
Marion is not coming from a place of super pickiness here, right? Th those two examples are kind of gross and tawdry. And we, we are left with this sense of, ugh, this is, it's not fun to be the person in town who's the single woman who everyone thinks is, is doomed to a life of spinsterhood. And these men who are sort of trying to quote unquote, I mean, seduce is not even a term you can say, pushing up, you up against the library is just sexual harassment at best. Um, so, so we really get a sense of what Marion's world is like, even aside from not having anyone in town who's worthwhile. I mean, these, these choices are terrible choices. Um, so we're already on her side, but then she just dives right in. So let us start. My white knight, not a Lancelot, nor an angel with wings, just someone to love me, who is not ashamed of a few so already we have a lot of stuff. She dives right in. There's not a lot of intro. There's just a little bit of musical interlude, which is appropriate for this moment. This isn't really a contemplative song necessarily. It's jumping out of a place where she's a little bit upset and she's arguing with her mother. So it's both argumentative, but it also is deeply felt. This is really frustrating for her. And right in this section, usually the high notes are reserved for the lofty emotional moments. Uh, that's just a general rule of thumb in these in musicals. The thing you wish to attain that feels attain unattainable. Um, all Anything that falls on a really high note, you have to pay special attention to. But it's interesting here because she has this kind of big jump to night, which is placing it in, the, in this place where it seems unattainable, that feels right. But she goes even higher and jumps off it, kind of. Not a... Uh, and then brings it all the way down to Lancelot or an angel with wings. And they just kind of are two notes back and forth quite a bit and then a little bit, it's very small. Um, so she's not holding either of these figures, the perfect white knight, who of course is Sir Lancelot, you know, the ultimate icon of uh, being a pure knight with noble intentions and handsome and strong and whatever, and a pure angel. She's not putting those things up high, right? So the music is, is already proving what she's saying. She doesn't want those things. For her, those things are not lofty and unattainable. That's not what she needs. And then she jumps up with just, which feels appropriate for where she is, which is a middle of the middle of an argument with her mom. She's interrupting herself to put that note there. Just, that's all she wants. This is it. And it jumps up high again on love me how this is what she's ultimately holding up in this emotional high zone. Something simple, someone to love her, just someone to love her. And then we get this lovely little moment on the placement of a few nice things. It's gently ascending and it feels placed. It feels nicely placed. It feels like, like things on a shelf, maybe books probably because it's Marion. You can almost see those little nice things in this phrase. It's not fancy or jazzy. She doesn't want, you know, a yacht or a a castle or big, these are not big dreams. She just wants someone who can appreciate the little things, a nice little house, you know, some tchotchkes on the shelf. Um, it's very simple and very small. And we also get in this already, she's kind of hopping around a little bit. This is an interesting tune, an interesting rhythm. It doesn't really go where you want. Sometimes it almost sounds like recitative. I think we're seeing these this nexus of her frustration and also her emotion and her thinking through some of this stuff and her trying to convey it to her mom. So we're getting all of that in this. My white 
What my heart would say if it only knew how is such an interesting line here because she hasn't really had a problem saying what her heart thinks. We know that from good night, my someone, but I think she does have a problem communicating with the people around her who all think she's this cold fish, basically the outside world. Even her mom is a little bit like, you got to be more open. You got to be more friendly. You got to show your feelings a little bit more. So this line is perhaps an acknowledgement that there is a block between her emotions and what she can communicate to the outside world. Because we know she's a true romantic, but clearly she's not able to really uh, let the town come to know her or even open up. I mean, I think her mother probably thinks most, uh, most obviously with, with Harold, she's not giving him an inch, but that's not really who Marion is. You know, she's, she's actually doing fine here. We, she really has this, this romantic heart, but, but she doesn't, her heart, what would her heart would say if it only knew how, right? She doesn't know how to uh, necessarily communicate, but she also doesn't know how to communicate this, right? It's been a long time for her, but she hasn't found this person. And I think there's that too. It's that frustration of, of clearly she's not saying it right because this hasn't happened. And then, of course, we get that great line, please, dear Venus, show me now, which I love for Marion. She's a librarian. She's well-read, and she's frankly kind of a nerd. So it makes sense that this would be her reference, an ancient Roman god, and that she would feel a, a personal connection to her with, you know, dear Venus. It's not just, oh, Venus is the little god of love. It's not intellectual, really. It's this is the god that she is, is really entreating here. And show me now is such a beautiful line because she's really she's really ready for this and she's losing some of the patience she had in Good Night My Someone, which was much more patient. It felt a little bit more like, I know you're out here somewhere. I'm happy to wait, you know, as long as I don't know you. Um, I'm just going to give you this message, but this feels like a very different thing. You know, please show me now who is this person and why do I have to keep being in this state? Um, and we hear that in that now, right? Again, the big emotional notes are always the ones that are that are more deeply felt, but it's also not the note that you expect it to be. It doesn't really resolve. It it feels frustrated. She she's putting that note out into the world now. She wants this now. All I want is a plain man. All I want is a modest man, a quiet man, a gentle man, a straight. This is such a fun little list. And she starts out, all I want is a plain man. All I want is an honest man. You know, this list. And then she gets a little bit carried away. It sweeps up into it. And each of these things, they're, they're so simple, right? She's, what she's saying is that she doesn't need a knight, a fancy knight, or a rich man, or a king, or whatever it is. She just wants these, this very attainable things, she thinks. Just a decent man. And of course, we get this wonderful musical theater thing. This is what she's describing is exactly the opposite of what Harold Hill is. Um, so this feels like it's directly addressing Mrs. Peru's desire for Marion to give into Hill's attentions, but it's also a little bit of a foreshadowing for us because of course, anytime someone in a musical sings about exactly who their love is going to be with specifics, we know we're gonna fall in love with, we know that they're gonna fall in love with the total opposite. A great example of this is I'll Know from Guys and Dolls in which they're both describing 
exactly not the other person, which is of course the person that's right for them. And then I'm going to back it up a tiny, tiny bit because this is such an, I, I love this contrast here that, that Wilson does. Hold on. A straightforward and honest man to sit with me in a cottage somewhere in the state of Iowa. And I would like him to be interested in us than in me. And if occasionally he'd So we get that wonderful, after this kind of swooping list of things, a straightforward and honest man to sit with me, it swoops up with this beautiful uh, energy and then it just sits. That line just kind of makes us stop and feel the simplicity of just sitting with someone. Uh, it's such a great little moment there and a little bit of foreshadowing to where Hill will ask her to sit with him later. It's a lot about sitting is a, is a thing that's imbued with romantic significance in this show. But we have this little musical illustration of what she wants. Just, just still, almost the music leaves. It's just pure. It's just a moment. And then, of course, we move on to uh, what, what somewhere in the state of Iowa, which I always like. It's not necessarily River City, but also her, her imaginings are, extend beyond this town. This town is not particularly nice to her, so I, I do not blame her for potentially thinking another town might be a better place to settle down, ultimately. But she loves the state. It's, we're not talking about someone who's like a world traveler necessarily here, but a little bit beyond the town. And then we get this interesting section, um, which does feel a little bit more like recitative. Uh, and I would like him to be more interested in me than he is in himself, which has a lot going on. You know, there's, there's a lot of words in this section. I would like him to be more interested, uh, which really contrasts the purity and space of be and me, which are those uh, emotional spikes. She's really hitting those moments. She just wants someone who can think about her, right? This is a simple thing. And of course, when it goes down to then he is in himself, it just, it's like the balloon of this high note just like pops. And especially in Barbara Cook's delivery here, it does feel like a direct dig at Hill. But she doesn't stay there too long. This is really mostly about what she wants in this person, not about her uh, feelings towards Hill. And it's, it's unclear in this song how much of this song is sort of a soliloquy for her herself and how much is still for her mother. I think some productions have it so that her mother is listening to the whole thing. Some productions have her mother there for part of it and then uh, leaves so that when Marion is getting into these kind of more internal sections, um, it's really about herself. It's not about necessarily trying to prove her mother wrong. So you have that choice. But it's also interesting to me that line because she she understands what a partnership is. She really wants a mature 
relationship. She wants someone to be more interested in her than himself, but more interested in them as a couple than in her. And that's something that is, I'd say, like one of the most mature depictions of an adult relationship in musical theater. It's such an interesting thing to throw in here um, to say that your your marriage or your partnership is a separate entity from either one of you and you have to kind of nourish that and let that grow. Um, so she's very emotionally mature. She's not a child. She's not someone who wants um, a prince to come in and save her. What she really wants is something that's a true partnership that shows an understanding of uh, how adult partnerships work. And then of course, after she says this about wanting someone who's more interested in them. She she can't help but throw in another request. She would love someone who's intellectually curious. And this is different from educated. She doesn't say she needs him to know about these things or to have a fancy degree, something like that. He needs to ponder them. He needs to be open to thinking about them, which is another kind of emotionally mature thing to want. Um, it is different than someone who is knowledgeable, who is an intellectual. She wants someone who can be open-minded to, to having these discussions with her about Shakespeare and Beethoven. Um, and that's just great insight into Marion too. She's not an intellectual snob, really. She honestly loves this stuff, as we can see with what she recommends to the ladies. She wants people to read books that are good and, and full of meaning to her and that she cares about. It's not just about defining yourself as someone who is smarter than everyone around you, which is, I think, what what people unfairly think of Marion, but it's really not true, and we're seeing that here. And then we have um, Him I Could Love Till I Die, which which we know is so deeply felt and so beautiful. We can hear that in the melody, and we hear it twice because she's just, that's ultimately the heart of this. If she could just find this person, then, then she's she will love him so much for the rest of her life. She's got so much love to, to give and she just can't find that person. I think we've all been there when you're just like in that moment of, of you just are waiting for this, this part of your heart to be unlocked. And as soon as it does, you know, you're just gonna be so, such a loving source, but you can't find that person. so gorgeous. If I could sing like that, I would never speak. I would just be singing all the time. So then we get a, a repeat of one of the first verses. And then this lovely statement, which I always think is so beautiful. Let me walk with him while the others ride by. Uh, it's a throwback to the original theme of the song, obviously, that her white knight, quote unquote. And just as a side note, I haven't defined this, but in case anyone needs a definition, you know, a white knight is a trope, basically, that it's, it's a a knight who's clad all in white. It's not a comment on uh, race or anything like that. 
who is the the old, the purest and the strongest and the best. It's a little bit old fashioned now. We don't use it that much, but just in case you don't know what a white knight is, that's what she's talking about. So her white knight isn't actually this white knight superhero. It's he's just a decent normal guy. And she emphasizes that with this image, which is a really interesting image. She doesn't need him to be on horseback. He can just walk, right? She doesn't even need him to be riding in when others are riding in. She doesn't care if he's less brave and and masculine and and for like uh outfitted than than the other people she just wants him to walk next to her which is also going back to how emotionally mature she is she she values a true partnership she wants to be net walking next to him she doesn't want to be swept up in his arms as he rides in on a horse and then i always think it's interesting that the last phrase of the song repeated is till i die with that big be- beautiful final note it's kind of a dark ending for this emotional song like till i die till i die but it's kind of marian it's it's a little old-fashioned it sounds like wedding vows to say till i die and i think we know that she would take wedding vows as she would take any vows very seriously but she's also a realist about life she doesn't seem like someone who is squeamish about death or um impractical about what life consists of and we see this here this isn't upsetting to her to think of dying having lived a life loving someone entirely it's just such a beautiful song so we have a lot more about marion in this song this is really an internal picture in a way that something like goodnight my someone was not quite an internal picture as much and we're seeing this kind of interesting complex song there's a lot of different rhythms in here there's a lot of sort of hop around notes. I mean, it it really moves between these big emotional frustrated calls to the world to find this person and these little kind of adorable, thoughtful, almost daydream moments where she's picturing this person and their life together in a way that we get the sense that she's, she's pictured a lot, a few nice things. That's all she really wants. And we get this, this argument with her mom, but we also get this, this personal in, kind of entreaty to Venus, to the world, to please like send this person because she's so ready for him. And all of this coming out of this moment where she's she's angry and frustrated with Hill, who her mother wants to see as this person. And her point here is this is so not the person. She's not going to settle. Um, of course, she's not fully understanding who Hill is right here uh, yet. So obviously she will soften and she will soften because she will see him doing something that proves that he is not this shyster that she imagines him to be. But we're getting all of this in here and it's really so lovely. And interestingly, this song, which is obviously her description of what it is she wants, was originally at one point um, intended to be a counterpoint to the Sadder But Wiser Girl, which is Hill's song about what he wants. In the same way that 76 Trombones and My Goodnight My Someone are sort of the same song, but in different versions. So these were originally supposed to fit together. So some of this interesting like hoppy around might have been because, you know, his version is interesting too, because uh, it's both the opposite of this song, because what he's talking about with a kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge is wanting a girl who has been around the block, basically. So in some ways they're talking about very different things because she wants this simple, decent man and he wants the girl who's kind of been there and come back. But in some ways they're talking about similar things. They don't want this kind of perfect ideal of what the society tells them they should want. What they want is something that's that's very attainable, that's actually a real human being who exists in the world. 
but they just haven't found the right one yet, sort of. Although Harold's is obviously much more casual and much more tongue-in-cheek than her real emotional cry here. So uh, very different. But yeah, and and this is such a, such a gorgeous song also. It's just so beautiful and, and gives that actress such a, a meal to have um, in addition to those beautiful high notes, which we all get to enjoy, especially when it's Barbara Cook. And now we get to one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the internal and external forces that the music man deals with that may be a bit more problematic. So let's start with, uh, I think, of the A-list canon musical theater shows. I think this is one of the ones that people take the biggest issue with in terms of why do we still perform it? Why does it still matter? I don't care about it. It's boring, yada, yada, yada. I think this is one of those that suffers from from that take nowadays. And there are, uh, you know, a number of reasons why. In particular, it has some some creaky elements when dealing with race, when you look at the Wa Tan Yi skit, and when you look at songs like The Side of a Wiser Girl and the gender roles that are kind of at play, or Shakupi, and even the lyric of that is a little bit creaky with age. The peppiest slut-shaming number of all time. <laughs> so I guess my, my question is, Annika, how... How do you feel about those those topics and the creakiness of the music man now that we're, you know, 60 years away from its premiere? Well, it's interesting. I think this is one that definitely suffers from what we are sort of calling the bad high school production syndrome, which a lot of these older shows suffer from, which is that a lot of people will have seen this show or encountered it first off in a bad high school production. Any bad production will always show off the problems more than the than the great things but i actually feel like this is i mean i will say first let me say this yes the the watani stuff is is problematic and you have to sort of work around that i think that that is definitely something that is uh not okay now and i would not i think you probably have you you don't have to do it that way right well, now, actually, fun fact. So the Goodsby production, it was changed to a recreation of Washington crossing uh, the Delaware uh, and a recreation of that painting. And that is now officially accepted by MTI as a change. There was not a change that was accepted previous to that. And that is now the acceptable change. So credit to uh, Jen Thompson and that creative team and those actors for uh, coming up with a, a fantastic solution to that problem. Yeah. Usually if a show has an issue like that, the licensing houses will step in to make sure that that it can be done in a way that isn't offensive to people now. But I think that this show is a classic because it is so brilliantly constructed. I mean, the music alone is so brilliantly constructed. But I also think that this show has a ton to say that is absolutely still 100% relevant today. I mean, with any good story... It is relevant even aside from its historical and sociopolitical context. And I think that's really true for this show. I'll just dive into what I kind of hinted at earlier, which is that one of the things that I think is so interesting about this show and kind of the reason that I love this show so much is because I think what this show ultimately is about in some ways is our tendency in society, in any group of people, to simply decide who is an outsider, who is an insider, and then that definition cannot be changed. 
And certainly this is true in the Iowa town that Meredith Wilson grew up in in the early part of the century. Certainly this is true in American culture, but I think it's true universally, all human cultures, all human groups, schools, cliques, et cetera, et cetera. Where I think this show really shines is in Harold Hill, you have an anti-hero, which is always an interesting thing. And certainly he's a lovable scamp, but he does something right off the bat that is so laudable and so deeply good as a human being that even though, yes, he is 100% coming to this town to con these people out of their money, he makes no bones about that. That is never unclear. We are never intended to think that maybe he feels bad about that or um, is not a con man. He is certainly a con man, that is clear. Um, what he also is, is popular. And we talked about this with popular from Wicked, but that line about especially, you know, uh, when you think of heads of state and especially great communicators, do they have braids of talent? Don't make me laugh. They were popular. We're seeing that in this show, certainly. I mean, Harold Hill comes into town within half a page of finding out like asking Marcellus what he can use, finding out that there's this billiards table, he has started trouble. By the end of trouble, in which he basically warns the town about himself, he talks about like some big out-of-town Jasper coming in to tell you, and he is a out-of-town Jasper, he is not one of them. But by the end of this number, this brilliant number, they are all eating out of the palm of his hand, they will do whatever he tells them to do, they will believe him whatever he says, they suddenly he's the authority of all the town they all want to be his friend except for the mayor that uh notably but um he has he is a tremendously popular person and he is able to use this power that he has both for the bad which is the con that he is able to pull because people just immediately trust him and want to be around him and follow his popularity as people do but also he does another thing, which is that he also immediately identifies the people in the town that, that have been declared outsiders. Marion, certainly one of them because of her sort of relationship with Miser Madison, but also because she's just not good at the stuff that the other women are good at. She's not good at kind of changing herself in any way to be friendly. You know, any of the social flexibility that other people have, she doesn't really have it. She can only be herself. Tommy, uh, Gillis, the kid from the wrong side of the tracks, who's kind of a troublemaker. He's got a gang. And we actually see Tommy being sort of a troublemaker, having a gang. So it's not only that he's from the wrong side of the tracks. Even Winthrop, who isn't sort of the same kind of social outcast for the reasons that the town has declared, but he has a speech impediment. So he has sort of separated himself from the rest of society because he's embarrassed and the society kind of a little bit makes fun of him for it. Um, we see that on a much smaller level. And also emotionally troubled by the loss of his father. So definitely. Yeah, absolutely. For that reason. The, the Peru family is an outsider because they, there's not a father within that family structure at the moment. Absolutely. And so what Harold does is identify these people and then immediately bring them into the fold. He makes Tommy his sort of assistant guy. He, sh he says to Tommy, like, I think you are going to be a great engineer. You know, he sees something in Tommy, whether he does see it for real or is just using it to kind of like give Tommy something that nobody else gives him, which is a kind of trust and a faith. He brings Tommy back into that position of like, my guy is the guy that's the, you know, he's going to be my number two. And he's the guy that everybody says, don't go with that kid. Marion, obviously he turns all the women who are judging her for exactly the things that they later love her for, which is recommending these classic novels that they think are so dirty until Harold tells them to read them. You know, he has a lot of different tools at his disposal, but he hates 
when the society has decided someone is an outcast. And so he is really correcting that. That's that's sort of the unconscious thing that he does at every moment in this show. And I think that that's what Marion sees in him that allows her to fall in love with him, is that it's not that he's so popular, it's not that he's so suave, it's not that he's so charming, it's that she sees that he's able to do this, right? At the turning point for her, we see she doesn't turn him in because of what he's done for Winthrop. He's allowed Winthrop to have the confidence to go forward and sing that song, and that's what really turns it for her. But then she can kind of see Harold who for who he really is, even when Harold can't see that himself. And that's kind of fascinating for a protagonist, because you have a protagonist who does something different from what he thinks he wants to do. A um, little bit complex there on a sort of dramaturgical level. And of course, you have the music, which is telling us this for ourselves in the way that the songs interlock in the way that he has a melody with Marion that he doesn't even realize but we do because we know that that's the same tune anyway there's a lot going on here and for me that actually plays into this gender stuff as well um certainly this town does judge Marion very harshly for what they perceive to be a questionable relationship with him with a man she was not married to which we know immediately that that's kind of ridiculous and what Harold does with that too is allow them to completely reject that as stupid and spurious right um as we see with the books but also the sadder but wiser girl which is a song that a lot of people struggle with because it is basically I mean it does sound like what Harold is saying is like I mean I don't know how to say this I, it, it sounds a little bit like he wants he wants the lady who's been around the block who has fewer other choices, the bad girl kind of. And I think it actually sort of plays into this same thing that he does. He he is not interested in the people that society deems valuable. He's interested in the people that society has deemed problematic. And that's what he wants. I mean, this is that song is a kind of crass expression of that, but he... I think it kind of goes back into the same thing that features with him. So anyway, that is all to say, I think that all of these things are so much more complicated than a very surface reading of what this show is about, which is kind of like, you know, this town and, and who, being conned. I think it's this is really so much a show about a stranger coming to town and allowing this town to see each other in a totally different way. You know, the music is a great example of that, too, in the same way that in this barbershop girl, Ted, you kind of get a symbol of what happens on this town as a whole, right? He comes to town and he brings them music in a real way, in addition to this way that's totally fake. But also, he allows this these fighting people who don't think that they have anything in common to realize that their very different notes that they sing at can be in harmony. This is really a show about harmony as much as it is about music. Even if you think you don't get along with the people around you, what is your melody might actually harmonize with the melodies of the people around you. It's not about becoming something other than who you are. It's actually about just finding and singing your own melody and and being open to the fact that there might be melodies around you that are a good counterpoint with yours. And so all of that is to say, it's. I think it's fine. I think it's rich. I think it tells a human story. I think that it's not creaky at all, really. I mean, you bring up a lot of interesting points. <laughs> I know, I really did a little <laughs> mini lecture there. Sorry, we should also say that 
both Michael and I know this show extremely well, have worked on it several times. So when we're going into this, we were like, oh God, we're going to, we're going to have a lot to say on this. Well, and because I, I do, I have a love for the show. It was the first show I ever did. It was my, it was the first, it was the first show I was ever in. Um, and so I, I think so much about the Winthrop trajectory and that, and that to me is the, the music, you know, bringing out the, the best in him and the confidence in him and brings out the confidence in the town and all that. Uh, but I think it's also interesting, you talk about the structure of the show and the way it's constructed. It really is brilliantly constructed, I think. Uh, it does have some timeline issues if you want to get into uh, the nitty gritty of the things that could potentially be fixed about The Music Man. Uh, there are definitely some some odd things that don't quite make sense uh, in terms of like the delivery time for when the instruments are supposed to get there and the uniforms and they've already had the July 4th, but they haven't because the ice cream sociable is, there are some, there's some questions that I would have. Uh, but uh, all that is to say, I do think that it, you know, I get frustrated too when people want to use the Music Man as uh, an allegory for politics or um, Harold Hill as a slimy politician uh, because exactly what you say I don't I, yes he cons them and he does get them to believe a certain truth that is not true but there is this air of goodness about him and he does ultimately believe you know at the end when Winthrop confronts him and is like is there really a band and he says I always think there's a band kid I think he genuinely believes that what he is doing is good for the community and good for people, even if he can't necessarily deliver that. He might not recognize that. He's been rode out of town on a rail and, you know, they want all the things. Like, he definitely is not a popular figure in the towns that he has left, as we learn um, in Rock Island in the opening number. But I do think that he understands that he does bring something good to the table. And championing the outsider is definitely one of those things. And a way that we see that he is a good person. He sees something in himself in Tommy. He sees something of himself in Winthrop and in these other characters and uh, and actually spends a lot of time trying to make those in power seem foolish, right? With all he does with the mayor and even the school board on a certain level, the way he distracts them and Eulalie being the chairman of the dance committee and all the things. I mean, he does, he is kind of a... I hesitate to say populist, but he is kind of this like deliverer of the, the 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 normal person and not necessarily the one who is exalted as who we should try to be. So all that is kind of say I get I get frustrated when people um, rag on the show because I think it's an easy target, particularly be, I think because it did beat West Side Story for Best Musical, which is now definitely in the A-list category and has grown to be far more revered than I think the music man is. Uh, but I, I, my controversial hot take is I, if I were a Tony voter in 1957, 58 season, I would also probably have voted for the music man. Uh, as much as West's story is great. I, I, I think music man is something particularly special that, uh, and is kind of the apex of a certain genre of musical comedy. I, I think it, it rests along with guys and dolls kind of at the top of that category. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because West Side Story and Music Man actually have a lot of thematic stuff in common. I mean, they are both about 
insiders and outsiders. They are both about who American society decides is good and who American society decides is bad. It's about worlds clashing together in in some ways, both of them. So obviously in a very different tone, West Side Story is, is addressing these issues more overtly. Music Man is kind of within the narrative, but um, they're not... They're not crazy dissimilar. Yeah, they're right. They're both right at the heart of what is America? What what do we consider American society to be? And this is kind of the love letter to an older bygone time, which may not have been as perfect or as equal or many other things. And West Side Story is painting a very contemporary picture of here's where we actually are. You know, I don't know that that's really necessarily a great point or a reason to defend the music man necessarily, but it is, I think, a tribute to who we can be as a, as a country and as a community, that we we could be inclusive of people who are different than us and maybe not who are championed or in positions of power. Yeah, and it's funny. I, I did this show at Two River in a production that was an all-Black production. We set it in a town that actually historically existed, these towns that were made up of freed slaves that were in the middle of America that were basically entirely African-American people. And, um, you know, it still t- completely works as a show. I mean, all you really need this show to be is about a community, um, a tight-knit community. Certainly, like, the Iowa flintiness is very helpful, but, you know, Iowa has all sorts of people in it. So it doesn't necessarily have to be about white Iowa people, even though, obviously, that is who uh, Meredith Wilson grew up around. It's, it's really uh, a story that can be placed in different places and still be just as effective, I think. So the last thing we wanted to talk about in this segment is what I'm going to refer to as the notorious table work theory that Winthrop is the son of Marion and old miser Madison and not, in fact, her little brother. This stems from the mention of her in the script being 26 and there are different versions of how old Winthrop is at youngest about seven at oldest about 10, which would put her anywhere between the years of 16 and 19. And this kind of stems from sometimes her cast being cast a little bit older, him being cast a little bit younger and how to make sense of that and all that. I guess, Annika, I, how do you, how do you feel about that theory? I have my own feelings about it. I suspect we agree on this theory, but uh, go ahead. I'm gonna be honest. I hate this stupid theory. Oh my god, I hate it so much. I hate it so much. <laughs> it just—it always comes up as if somebody's found like this, you know, PizzaGate Music Man truth, and that's just like—and and I do get it because I think it also often stems from uh, Mrs. Peru being cast as someone who's like very much an old woman. Um, so often it feels like, huh? How how is that? 70 year old person supposed to be like the the mother of a a 10 year old child so you know i think you should be cautious about that when you're casting because you do you do start this kind of weird mystery of like why is there this this child um but guys nah i also i think you're right to bring up that this is really a casting problem in so many ways that we have typified so many of these roles into being older than they actually are because the original iconic performers were seemingly older than they were scripted to be. And like Robert Preston was only 39 when he starred in the role on Broadway. He was like 
early 40s for the movie but he kind of has always looked like he was 50 like he just yeah. one of those people who looks 50 and therefore like a lot of older you know men get cast into this role uh and subsequently marion because she is an old maid by amaryllis's estimation gets sometimes pushed a little bit older than being 26 years too late for the footbridge and uh, you know right and Winthrop gets cast younger, yada, yada, yada. Mrs. Peru gets cast older. So I would say maybe let's be a little bit more accurate and text-based with our casting as opposed to uh, just trying to make a theory that is way more, I don't want to say twisted, but way more complicated than the music man needs to be. Yeah, yeah. And, and it also just sort of, I mean, to me, it messes with the text a little bit, which is like, you know... It, the point of the town being suspicious about Marion and Miser Madison is not that there's actually truth at the root of it. Then it becomes a very different thing. The point is that it was so unbelievable to them that a young single woman could be friends with this old man that also had been declared an outsider by the by the town, um, which is one of my favorite jokes in the whole show, actually, is when they're telling you know, his name is Miser Madison and, and Hill says, you know, oh, like the Madison Gymnasium, like the Madison, you know, library, like he's all the Madison Park, that, Madison yeah. Park, that Miser Madison. Right. Who do you think he was anyway? Right. And which is a great joke because like they're calling him Miser, even though he donated half the town to the town, you know, it just goes to show how rigid these people are in their decisions about who is, who is what. So I think that, you know, the way it's written, it does speak to both Marion and her open heart in that, you know, she was friends with a with a lonely old man who didn't have a friend in this town, um, which is what how someone describes him, even though clearly he's giving these people all that he has. Um, and she, he understood her because he gave her something that was a great gift and a real understanding of who she is, um, which is this library and, well, the books in the library so that obviously it, it also enables her to have a job. I mean, like, basically, it's it's about two people who founded a friendship, even though socially that's not supposed to be a thing. If they had an affair, it becomes a completely different question. And then it just becomes something that is... I don't know. It just is a different kind of show. Then Harold's relationship with Marion and Marion's relationship with the town is different. Marion's relationship with Winthrop, like just, it's just not real. I don't think it works out in terms of timeline, although there is like a little bit of weirdness in terms of when the father died, etc. But, um, well, it's just, it's interesting too, that they talk about like Miser Madison didn't have a friend in this town till she came here. Which, going back to your insider-outsider thing, the Perus are transplants to this community. It's not like they've been here all along, based on yeah. that dialogue. So I think that's an, also an interesting thing at play here, right? Is that, like, she kind of got her place in the town because of her relationship with, her kind-hearted relationship with this older, lonely man, so. Yeah, although, doesn't, they also say that Miser Madison was a, she says that he was a friend of her father's. Yes, yeah, which I think is actually legitimately a bit of a loophole in the show, because I think there's just two narratives there where it's like, on the one hand, like, I I love the show. I do. I, I do feel like the show kind of has it both ways, where it sometimes feels like the father was a present part of this community, and sometimes it feels like they never had a father who was a present part of the community. So it's a little bit it's not super consistent, but... 
Um, I guess you could come up with a theory that they were friends from some other before. Way, and then they moved. They moved there because of the relationship with him or something. I don't know. Yeah, you could totally do that. Make that story. Yeah. But, but you're right. There are lots of loopholes in timeline conundrums with Music Man, which is not to say that other classic musicals don't also have those. Um, yeah. But uh, just to say. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just it just is not necessary and I just find it kind of annoying. I completely agree. Completely agree. And that brings us to our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things about the Music Man. So, Annika, who is going to be your favorite character in the Music Man? I have to give it to uh, Eulalie Shin. Eulalie McKechnie Shin. Uh, Eulalie McKechnie Shin. <laughs> I think she's a, such a hoot. She's an absurd character. I love her. Uh, she is the incarnation of the idea of like a person who thinks she's totally right in all things and is completely wrong in most things. And watching that character, like for a character who's been set up as this kind of bastion of um, elegance and uprightness to then do that dance in the second act, whatever that dance is, it is the best and the funniest thing. I, I always love humor that's based on sort of contrast between things that are silly and things that are, um, and there's nothing more, more funny than someone who's really formal, uh, doing something extremely silly that they, that they truly believe in. And she's just always really a hoot. And the fact that she gets her redemption at the end, that she's one of the people who really does understand the value that he has brought to the town. Yeah. And, I think she's a great choice. She's a great choice. I Eulalie is like one of the great secondary comic roles in musical theater. In my imagined sequel to the show, she is the mayor. Eulalie for mayor, 1916. I can see the signs now. <laughs> so who is your favorite character, Michael? So this is hard because I, as I, everyone knows, I love the show. I love every character. So there are tons of places that I could put this. I'm going to go ahead and say that Winthrop is my favorite character because I absolutely love him. I adore him. It is totally also for personal biography reasons that he is my favorite character, but uh, his arc in the show is very meaningful to me. I think the scene between the fight scene between him and Harold at the very end and Marion is really great. And it would be so easy to say that Marion's my favorite character or Harold or even the mayor. I mean, it's so easy to, shine a spotlight there and say that I, I love those characters because I do, but I Winthrop holds a special place in my heart and will forever and for always. I just think he's a sweet and adorable and who doesn't love that solo in the Wells Fargo wagon and Gary and Deanna while kind of a not necessary act two number is still delightful. So, so I have to give, I have to give it to for his special place in my heart. I have to give it to Winthrop. No, thank you, Amaryllis. Aw. So what's, in this score of scores, Annika, what's your favorite song in The Music Man? Oh, this is really hard. This one is super, super hard. <laughs> because there are so many, it is very hard for me to say. Um, okay, so <laughs> I feel like I have to break my, my favorite down into categories. Um, so in terms of 
songs I love to analyze and talk about and think are just mind-blowingly important in the history of musical theater songs. I have to give it to Rock Island, which is brilliant, but it's not my favorite to like listen to necessarily because it's also not really a song. So the caveat of that, um, I'm going to give it to Trouble. You Got Trouble is the mammoth, brilliant. I love that song so much because it does so much as a scene it does so much as a song there's so much in it it's so rich it's it's like i I mean it's musical theater's comedy soliloquy basically it's it's one of the best numbers to perform of all time it's so widely parodied um I, i really i feel like i can't not say trouble because of what it is it's just a brilliant brilliant song number scene the language in it is amazing the it's fun to listen i mean it's just great so i'm gonna say that but i will say that one of the lesser known or lesser appreciated songs in the score that i just love listening to all the time is lida rose i was hoping you were gonna say that i was hoping you were gonna say that yeah that i have to say in, in in a score full of beautiful gems that are so pleasing to listen to there is something about the sweetness and the mellowness of the Lida Rose, and I, I love a barbershop quartet, so that's not really a surprise, but Lida Rose combined with Marion singing Will I Ever Tell You, it's such it's a moment that lets you kind of breathe in the score in a really nice way, and it shows how she's starting to become a part of this community in a real way. I mean, it, it's just, and it's just lovely. It's so lovely. So, so my head and myself says trouble, but my heart says Lida Rose. I, I mean, I was hoping you were going to say Lighter Rose when you built it up that way because it is such a, it's a beautiful number. I mean, I get chills just thinking about it, but it's, it's, it's such a surprise too, because it's like the second song, it's like the second or third song in act two proper. Um, And it's just, it's the overlay, everything about it. It's just bliss. It's just bliss. It's bliss. I will also say that if, you do a production of the music man and people do not leave talking about the barbershop quartet. You've not done a good production of the music man. And it's so frustrating because I mean, first off from a music director perspective, that is one of the hardest challenges ever is to pull off that quartet step one, but step two, if people leave talking about that quartet, it means that everything else has been properly done because they are set up to be what people talk about. And it's an underappreciated element of the show but it's the first thing that people should leave talking about. Absolutely. And it's another good example of, of how well this show uses contrast for humor because those cranky, angry men who turn into this, you know, s- stepping together sweetness and light uh, quartet, it's just great. And I, the moments where Harold Hill always can make them start singing just with the tiniest, tiniest nudge are so funny. They're just great. It's it's a really perfect part of this show. Uh, so what is your favorite song, Michael? My favorite is definitely My White Knight. I think it's one of the best songs ever written for musical theater. Barbara Cook on that original album is stunning. So, uh, and it's the emotional pin, in some ways the emotional pinnacle of the show for me. It It's so interesting structurally too. Harold Hill drives the show up until Marion sings My White Knight and then she becomes the driving force of the show. The narrative totally sits on her and her journey. And I think it's such a brilliant construction on Meredith Wilson's part. But 
there's no question in my mind. I, as much as I love the entire score and it maybe is my favorite score in all of musical theater, My White Knight is my favorite song. So what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about The Music Man, Monica? Oh, this is hard because there's just so much I love about this show. But I'm actually going to take it outside the show uh, with the caveat that there's a million things I could talk about in the show that I love. There's so many jokes that I love. There, it's just full of really great, great moments. Um, but I have to say, I love the parodies of this show. I think it's one of the most parodied musical theater moments. Um, I can think of, you know, the Simpsons and the monorail episode. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend has done a parody of it. Trouble especially. Yeah, and you've got Family Guy. Yeah, Family Guy. Yeah, there, it's, it's always funny. And I just... There's something so iconic about this entire show and about this entire, um, that moment that translates so well into different mediums and is always such a joy to see what people do with it. So I do think that parodies are only ever arise from people's great love of that original source material. And I think that's true with a lot of these. And I just, I always love them. So I'm so glad that in addition to this brilliant show, that's a gem, um, it has allowed so many moments after it to happen that's a great it's a great choice michael difficult question what is your favorite miscellaneous thing from the music man so you're right this is really hard much like you struggled with it i struggle with it because there's so much that i could say that i love about it and there are so many small little moments that i love in the show but I'm going to have to go ahead and give it to Robert Preston's original performance, which is captured on the cast recording, captured on the film in the movie. It's a pretty masterful retired the Jersey performance. As we've discussed other times, It he is so good and so charming, but you believe he's a con man, but you love him anyway. And uh, he almost effortlessly does some of these tongue twister songs and things and it, it's a massive part to play when you do it on stage because you just don't leave the stage really and i would have loved to see him do it on broadway back in the day but we of course have the movie but uh, i have to give it to him he's it's absolutely iconic it's just it's phenomenal it's phenomenal excellent choice and that brings us to our final segment corner of the sky gotta find my corner of the sky. Where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. So, Annika, what is Music Man's Corner of the Sky? I think that this is a show, in addition to being sort of an A-plus canon classic, I think this is one of the most influential shows in the history of shows that have affected musical theater form. I think the way... Meredith Wilson used music and rhythm especially um, is so full of meaning, is so rich, is is kind of its own language of storytelling. Um, and I think I think even though you can certainly debate whether whether rap, you know, rap's relationship to this and um, other shows that have used it. I, I don't think you can argue with the idea that if Meredith Wilson hadn't used rhythmic language in the way that he did in this show, that a show like Hamilton would ever really exist in the same way. I think he sort of opened a door to um, 
communication through rhythm and music and melody, um, through which many, many artists were to follow. But I, I don't think we can underestimate or I don't think we can state enough how important that was and how unique that was and how um, just foundational that was uh, to art, to musical theater, to um, musical storytelling in the future. I think it's a great point. Uh, and one of the things that they really, when you read the books and stories about its journey and things, it, it's revolutionary, that opening number, and people just, their jaws were on the floor over it. Uh, and, uh, and so I think it's a very valuable point. I think it's also important to note that as far as like old fashioned musical comedies go, this is kind of the apex of the original story musical comedies. Every other big A-list musical comedy, Guys and Dolls, Hello Dolly, all have some kind of source material they're based on. And we've definitely discussed that Guys and Dolls has some original elements to it, but based in the world of uh, Damon Runyon. But this, even though it's obviously based on Meredith Wilson's childhood in Mason City, Iowa, and has that as a basis, kind of, the story is entirely original. And I think that's it's no small achievement that despite all the loopholes we've talked about and some of the timeline issues and whatnot, it really is kind of the apex of the original musical comedy genre. It's one of the, it's not, I can't say, we can't say it's one of the last ones. We've got a few more years before the old fashioned musical comedy kind of dies out, but it certainly gives a boost to it at a time when Broadway was going through transformational change with West Side Story down down the road. Uh, so I, I think that is also an important part of its place in the musical theater canon. Yeah, that's definitely true. It's also it blows my mind that one person wrote this. <laughs> yeah, and Franklin Lacey certainly deserves credit for what he did to help the story get along, but it really is amazing that one guy wrote this masterpiece. Well, I think that wraps it up for our deep dive into The Music Man. Annika, I think we solved the trouble in River City. We did, and it's not seven hours long, which must only be because we were using the think system the whole time. It's real. Hey, if you think it, you can do it. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, the think system is basically the secret that self-help book from like 15 years ago. Exactly. So, All right. Yeah. It's the think system. It's just you, you visualize it and then it will come true. Harold Hill was on to something. So Annika, would you like to tell the good people what is going to be in the spotlight next episode? Why, yes, I do. But instead of just telling you straight out what it is, I'm going to give you a little trivia teaser so that the audience can guess in anticipation of the next episode. In a brand new segment, we're calling What Comes Next? What Comes Next? So, Annika, go ahead and give us the clue for what show is going to be in the spotlight next. So the show that we're going to be diving into next time is a 1981 show whose protagonist was originally supposed to die at the end of Act One until the star of the show left the project because she was so uh, upset about this. So they rethought it and the show moved on. Ooh, there is no, 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 no way that a lot of people will know what that one is. That's tough. Ooh, that's a toughie. I guess everyone's going to have to tune into the next episode to see what the answer is. So, so long, farewell. 
We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. Our podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time!